Good morning, everybody. Everybody doing all right this morning? Yeah. Sad. <laughs> Love it. Love it. You guys woke up excited this morning. You just woke up excited. Yeah. Uh, how many of you had to drink a cup of coffee just to get going, and you're not sure where you're at right now? Yeah, you just, you're the opposite. Yeah. Uh, when my youngest was two years old, he would wake up triumphantly in the morning and yell out, Ta-da! I woke up! It was annoying. <laughs> but he couldn't wait to have a new day. A two-year-old would never dream of hitting the snooze button or hissing at the sunlight as it comes through because they can't wait to have a new day. There's too many things to experience repeatedly on YouTube to sleep in. One of the things I love about kids is the way they see the world with fresh eyes. They see the world with celebration rather than cynicism. They still have that sparkle. According to Andy Stanley, all of us have different points in our life when wonder is awakened within us. For guys, the biggest moment of wonder is when you were about 11 or 12 years old. You were over at your best friend's house, and his sister came out, and you've seen her a thousand times before. But for the first time, you saw her differently, and you were an idiot ever since and started wearing deodorant because wonder was awakened within you. Girls are different. They're more sophisticated. They mature more quickly. For them, wonder was awoken when they were at the mall. They had been there a thousand times before with their mom, and they hated going. But this day, they were walking, and they saw this window, and there were hundreds of shoes in there, and wonder was awakened within them. When wonder is awakened, you see the world differently. Jesus had a way of helping people to see the world differently, to see people differently. All the people, the religious leaders, were willing to dismiss Jesus saw value and wonder within them, which is important because how you see people determines how you treat people. I want you to hear that this morning. How you see people determines how you treat people. We've been in a series called The Breakfast of Champions. We've been talking about the fruit of the Spirit, nine characteristics that we want to define all of our lives so that when people think about us, they think of us as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control. I want everyone to stand up, and we're going to read our theme verse together. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 through 23. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. You may be seated if I were to give you a homework assignment, it would be to memorize these two verses this next week and just begin to let them percolate in your mind and in your heart, asking God, are these the words that define my life? This morning, I want to talk about gentleness. So every week we've been talking about just one of the fruit of the Spirit. This morning, I want to talk about gentleness. So everyone say gentleness. A little less violently, though, guys, just gentleness. Uh, now, most manly men, and I'm not one of them, but most manly men... I'm just not. I'm built like where's Waldo, you know? There's a reason why Waldo's hiding all the time is because he's not built for the real world. Um, now, most manly men, uh, they don't get excited about the idea of gentleness. There's this constant message in our culture that to be manly, you have to have calloused hands, grow a beard, deadlift 500 pounds, know how to fix things, and don't freak out if you see a bug. I was at my house not too long ago, 
and an itsy-bitsy spider was going across the ceiling when one of my boys happened to notice it and point it out. So, manly dad, I reach up to grab it, and it jumps off and lands on my chest and starts crawling around. I'm not going to say which of the boys did this, but some of the boys in my household screamed at an octave that would have made Ariana Grande proud. (laughs) And then my wife took care of the spider. It wasn't very manly, but we need to understand that meekness is not weakness. The word that is used for gentle means power that is under control. Power that is under control used to benefit someone else. Power that is under control used to benefit someone else. It was the word that was used for a stallion that had been tamed. That horse still had all the same power it had before, but now that power was under control to be used to help someone else. As a side note, I think it's stupid to ride a horse. I'm sorry if that offends someone who likes riding horses. I grew up with horses, and I never understood the appeal of sitting on something that no matter how tame it is will always be more powerful than you. Amen? Power that is under control. Jesus was powerful. He had the authority to boss people around, force them into submission, but he was intentionally gentle. He motivated rather than dominated. He motivated rather than dominated. He came as a servant rather than as a domineering deity. He served. I think my favorite example is when Jesus says, a bruised reed I will not break and a smoldering wick I will not blow out. Now, for many of us, we hear that and we're like, Pastor, I don't understand why that's so exciting. So let me explain. It's a beautiful metaphor of things that are weak that are used in a way that is empowering. Anyone who has ever walked through a marsh field has seen reeds. In the ancient culture, they were often used for mats and for boats. They were actually very valuable. But when you were going through and you were picking out reeds, if any of them were bruised or broken, they would be thrown away because they could not be used for anything beneficial. You did not recycle them. You tossed them out. Okay? The second, before we had cell phones that had a flashlight feature on them, people had to use candles. Lamps in the first century were a bowl with oil with a wick that was inside of it. Once that wick began to smolder, it was time to toss it out. It was good for nothing. Jesus comes along and he says, those things that everyone else would toss out and see as useless, I see value in them and I would never throw them away. Both of them are pictures of broken, weak things which are normally tossed aside. Jesus says, I don't ignore the hurting passed by those who are burnt out, rather I gently restore them. Isn't that beautiful? That's why Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weak and weary, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and humble in heart. That's the way that we are called to treat the people around us. The people that we see throughout our day. The checkout clerk at Walmart. The waitress at Chili's. Our children. I'm going to say that again. Our children. Our parents, our friends, our classmates, anyone that we might encounter, we're called to handle them with care. But are we always gentle? Do we have a hard time telling without yelling, you know who you are? Do we have a short fuse, you know who you are? And if you don't, the people in your family could tell you that you are that person. They won't because you'll blow up at them, but they could tell you. We live in a culture of violence. When I was growing up, video games were much more tame. The most violent game we had was Mortal Kombat, and you had to put a code in it in order for there to be blood. 
It was called the blood code, A-B-A-C-A-B-B. Not that I ever used it, but that was the code. Now there's Grand Theft Auto, Call of Duty, Fortnite, and a thousand zombie games. We hear it in our music. Here's a line from just a rap song. I'm just waiting for a fool so I could use his blood for my backyard pool. Why? Why is that music? We sit in our movies. 90% of movies, 68% of video games, and 60% of TV shows show violence. We sit on the streets. Killing takes place in America an average of 87 times a day. 87 times a day. There are neighborhoods where parents have to teach their kids that when a car comes screaming down, you duck and you lay down because there might be a drive-by and there might be gunfire. Kids shouldn't have to think about that or learn about that. Beyond the violence in our streets is the violence in our hearts. Hostility, hatred, despair, indifference are at the heart of a growing culture of violence. We hear it in our conversations when we constantly yell, threaten, make sarcastic comments. And yet we're challenged to be gentle. Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Newsflash, spoiler alert, God does not live at the well. God is in your home. He's in your car. He's in your office. He's in those places where you act a fool. You come in here and you can fool the rest of us and act like you're super gentle. But God knows what you're really like. And you are called to be gentle at all times because God is always your passenger. He's always there with you. As Christians, we should be some of the most gentle people on the planet. Paul once said, 1 Thessalonians 2.7, we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. Remember when I started out that how you see people determines how you treat people. So Paul says, here's a mental exercise for you. Do you treat the people around you as if they were an infant? Can you imagine if you treated an infant the way that you talk to your spouse, the way you talk to your teenager, the way that you talk to your co-workers and employees or boss? Paul says you would never dare. So let's change the way we see people. Now, this does not count if you call your husband a big baby. That's not what he's talking about. That doesn't work. I was thinking of the nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again. Have you ever thought about how stupid that is? Of course the horses couldn't put him back together again. They have hooves for hands. The worst thing for, causing, for having surgery in your life is hooves, especially when you're working with somebody made out of shell. I don't know about you, but there's times when you go to the doctor and you walk away feeling worse than when you went in. Anyone ever feel that way? And you went in with one thing, and you came out, I was like, man, I feel like 10 times. I mean, you ever, like, watch those prescription ads, like, on, like, TV, and they're like, you can take this, it'll get rid of a headache, but your arms will fall off, your spouse will run away from you in horror. I mean, it's this guy going through all this, and you're like, why would anyone ever take that stuff? You know, I mean, you, you feel worse. Or you go to church, and the people who are supposed to show you grace beat you up, you know, or the mechanic, the car's worse, and you spend a lot of money on it, or the counselor, and the anxiety's worse. Here's the deal. No one who ever went to Jesus walked away worse. No one who went to Jesus ever walked away worse. One of the things that attracted people to Jesus was his gentleness. The way he treated people with dignity and respect. I want to share with you guys a story in John chapter 5, verse 1 through 9, where we see Jesus living this out. Sometime later, 
Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid or paralyzed for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? I want you guys to say that last phrase with me. Do you want to get well? Let's say it one more time. Do you want to get well? At first, this doesn't seem like a very gentle question. It seems actually kind of insensitive and rude. No, Jesus, I can actually walk. I have people bring me here because it's great for picking up the chicks. You know, the sympathy card goes a long ways. No, obviously, I want to get well. I've been this way for 38 years, and I go to this pool because there's this promise that if you get into it first, you will be healed. That's why I'm here. You know, none of us would go into a jazzercise class and say, anyone want to lose weight? Obviously, if I'm in jazzercise, it's not because it's fun. You know, this guy wants to get well. But the reason why Jesus starts with this question is it's strategic. It's strategic what Jesus is doing. And just because we're gentle doesn't mean we don't ever confront. But we confront with truth and love. And we miss that point. Some of us are really good at the truth part. We, we find it our moral obligation to let everyone know what they're doing wrong. But Scripture says that you are to bring the truth in love, packaged in love, packaged in gentleness, and Jesus does that always. If you want to know what it looks like, look at Jesus. So Jesus comes up and says, do you want to get well? And I believe he asked this because there's four different kinds of people when it comes to respond in this question. Number one, those who don't want to get well because they don't realize that they are sick. There are some people who don't want to get well because they do not know that they are sick. Have you ever met someone like that? Don't look at them. But have you ever met someone like that? They're a David Banner. They hulk out all the time. But if you mention anger management to them, they look at you like you're crazy. Anger? I don't have a problem with anger. What are you talking about? And they, they just like power up and they start slamming stuff around. It's like, That's an example of what I'm talking about. Every time I would ask my grandma if she was sick, she would say, no, it's allergies. Allergies don't make you have to run to the bathroom every 15 minutes, Grandma. You know, this isn't allergy. This is the flu. But she would swear every time, it's just allergies. I just got to take some Claritin. Grandma, this is contagious. You know, you are fooling yourself. You're not fooling everyone around you. It's so easy for us to pull the wool over our own eyes and for us to be self-deceived. There's a gap between the way we see ourselves and the way everyone else sees us. 93% of motorists think that they are awesome drivers. You know that can't be true. <laughs> You've been on the road. There's no way that 93% are awesome drivers. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. You, this is a church that he's speaking to. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. They had one perception about themselves. They saw themselves as being spiritually mature, that they were all this in a bag of chips. But God comes along and says, no, you don't even realize how sick you are right now and that you need healing. Now, none of us want to admit that we have blind spots, but it's inescapable. For example, we don't see our own facial expressions. 
In 2012, Michaela Maroney won a silver medal in the Olympics, but what she was remembered for was her smirk. You guys remember that? When she didn't win the gold, that was the look on her face. You see, some of us aren't very good at poker faces. See, I'm not a yeller. I don't yell in my home. When I yell, it sounds like this. It's kind of creepy. You know what you did. (laughs) That is more effective. Uh, I'm not a yeller, but you can see on my face if something's wrong, and my wife will call me out on it. What's wrong? And I give the stereotypical mature husband answer. Nothing's wrong. What are you talking about? I don't even, you know, the head starts going around. It's like, there is nothing wrong. Get out of my perfect space. You can't see your own facial expression. You don't see your own attitude. You don't hear your own tone. Some of us don't realize that we're sick. Number two, those who want to get well but don't want to put in the work. There are some people who want the instant fix, but they don't want to do the hard work. When I first became a Christian, I decided I would give up on smoking cigarettes and other stuff. But rather than throw them away, I decided to put them in a box, in a closet, just in case I had a sudden case of glaucoma. That's not supposed to be funny. (laughs) I didn't touch them for several weeks, but I always knew I could go back if I wanted to. By my words, I told God, I want to be well, but by my actions, I showed that I wasn't really ready for wholeness. I was hanging on to it. Eventually, I opened that box, and you can guess what happened. Being healed changes everything. Sometimes our healing comes with a price tag, though. It comes at a cost. And the question becomes, are we willing to pay the price? Are we willing to do what it takes for that healing? Often I wonder if we want to be healed but aren't ready for the change that it will bring. That sickness has defined you. It has become what you are known for, and you can't imagine life without it. Do you really want the responsibility of a promotion at work, or is it just easier to complain about not having more money and not having that title? Do you really want to forgive that person and move on and be freed? Because hanging on to that's only hurting you, or is it easier to hold on to that bitterness? As Jesus points out in a roundabout way, you cannot help someone who does not want to be helped. You cannot help someone who does not want to be helped. So you have to start with the question, do you want to be healed? Are you ready for what this is going to mean for your life? I had a friend pop in. He has wrestled with drugs, alcohol, and porn for a few years. He's in the cycle, cycle of repentance, reform, and relapse. Repentance, reform, relapse. Repentance, reform, relapse. And every time he means it. But then he finds himself back into that same gutter. And one of the challenges of breaking free is that we're made of two competing drives, our rational drive and our emotional drive. One person compared it to a jockey riding an elephant. You can drive the elephant, but as soon as the elephant decides it wants to go a different direction, you are not going to win that tug of war. You've experienced this if you've ever slept in. How many of you guys have ever said, I'm going jogging, like at 5 in the morning, and the alarm went off, and you went back to sleep? How many? You've experienced this. You call up an ex at midnight. You overeat. You abandon your Spanish or piano lessons. You skip the gym. You refuse to speak up during a meeting because you were scared. You've experienced this tug of war. Sometimes we say to God, I want to be well, but we're not ready to do the hard work of surrender. 
We're not ready to do what it takes to conquer the elephant. And Jesus wants to know, are you just saying you want to be well, or are you ready to do the hard work? Are you ready to do the hard work? Number three, those who want to get healed are willing to put in the hard work, but believe it's impossible. Keep in mind, this man has been this way for 38 years. 38 years needing people to carry him. There were no wheelchairs around. He could not wheel himself to places. He had to depend on others. My son had knee surgery a few years ago, and he had to be wheelchair-bound. So Halloween comes along. It's time to go trick-or-treating, and he has this wheelchair that he's got to take from house to house. My father-in-law was creative enough and compassionate enough to build him a tank to go around this wheelchair so he could go around in what looked like an army tank. Cops were pulling us over, taking pictures with us. He was the number one costume in that neighborhood, and people were, like, dumping candy, and it was awesome. And people kept saying to me, you are such an awesome dad. I can't believe you did this for your son, and I did not correct them. But my son was only limited for a short while. I can't imagine 38 years. 38 years. It seems like this is going to define my life, and this is all I will ever know. When a domestic elephant is born, it is chained in place by a small chain, but strong enough to hold that little elephant in place. And that elephant will fight, and it will try, and it will not succeed. And eventually, that elephant will outgrow that chain. It will get stronger. It will get bigger. It will get to a place where it could snap that chain very easily, but it will not try because it will remember all the times it tried in the past and failed. Some of you are living that way. Some of you are living that way. You tried in the past to overcome that addiction, that challenge, that hang-up, and you failed. And so now you have given up and you believe it's impossible. Even though you've grown as a person, even though you're further in your relationship with God, you still, in your mind, see it as impossible. I tried to forgive that person. I tried to keep my car clean. I tried to get out of debt. I tried not to wear the same pair of socks more than three days in a row. You know who you are. The longer a problem persists, the more discouraged we become. We start feeling like getting better is impossible. And I think of when I was writing this, I kept thinking about the Israelites who are called to walk around the walls of Jericho. And God tells them, you know, walk around the walls of Jericho and, and a miracle is going to happen. And on, on day one, they walk around and what happens? Nothing. On day two, they go out and they walk around and what happens? Same thing as day one, nothing. Day three, nothing. Day four, nothing. Day five, nothing. How many of you, by like, day, I probably would be like day three, but by day five, you'd be like, all right, God, this is ridiculous. You know, why in the world am I walking around this wall? I mean, if you want to do something, you could have done it on day one. This makes no sense. I mean, bricks aren't shaking. There's no indication that a miracle is going to happen. And God says, trust me, keep walking. Day seven, they do the same exact thing, but the walls come tumbling down. Some of us, God is saying, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Proverbs says that the righteous fall seven times, but they get back up. The righteous aren't the people who never fall. The righteous is the one who fall and get back up. You are not a failure because you fail. You are a failure because you don't try again. Some of us need to hear that God wants us to go one more time, one more time, one more time. The miracle is coming. Thank you, Jerome. Number four, those who want to get well are willing to put in the work and believe that God, that in God all things are possible. 
I was reading Craig Grishel. He's a pastor. And he was talking about his dad, who started drinking alcohol when he was 13 years old. He was an alcoholic for 51 years, until he was 51 years old. At that point, he cried out for Jesus, and he went to AA. And if you do the math, you'll find out that he had been an alcoholic for 38 years, the same amount of time that the invalid had been paralyzed for 38 years. He's been sober now for 20 years and helps others find freedom. His misery became his ministry. His pain became his platform. Your sickness does not have to define you. So, yeah, go ahead. Once again, I think we need to work on clapping around here. I mean, if you're going to do it, just commit, you know. But we're, that was better. That was definitely better than at the beginning. So we're, 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 we're just, yeah, there, there you go. There you go. I think what would help is if we just always keep in mind, I'm not clapping for Pastor Dan. Because I understand if you just like a little clap like this for Pastor Dan, that's fine. You're clapping for God. That deserves a, there you go. Much more inspirational. John chapter 5 goes on to say, so Jesus asked, do you want to get well? Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool. When the water is stirred while I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. One moment with Jesus changed everything. One moment with Jesus changed everything. 38 years of bondage. 38 years held back. 38 years feeling like this is who I am. I will never be any different. And 38 seconds with Jesus set free. You have no idea what a day could bring. You should wake up every morning like that two-year-old. Ta-da! I'm awake and I don't know what's going to happen today, but I bet it's going to be awesome. Every day, we run into people who are hurting. You don't know what your kids go through when they're at school. You don't know what your spouse goes through when they're at work. You don't know what the barista that you are so rude to in the morning, like, they didn't get my coffee to me fast enough. They didn't make it right. You don't know what their life is like, what they're going through. They are not just a cog in the wheel to serve you. They are a human being made in the image of God, and they deserve respect. <laughs> So maybe they look like they have their lives together, but inside maybe they're a mess, and gentleness is a must. Handle with care. Hold the tension of honest but hopeful, grace but truth. We need to try and restore those who want to get well as Jesus did. Amen? Amen. To me, that is the definition of church. Church should be a place where people want to get well, and they meet people who are going to bring truth, but they're going to do so packaged in gentleness and love. Amen. Amen.